when we are talking about the expeditions in the Okavango, Zambezi, Congo, Nile, Chad, Niger river basins, when we complete those, we would have traveled further than the full circumference of the planet, going around the whole earth in a dugout canoe, basically. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries, a podcast in partnership with Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative and the Washington Post Creative Group. Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative support explorers, innovators, and visionaries who strive to protect our natural world. I'm proud to be bringing you some of their stories from the cutting edge of conservation. On this episode, I get to talk to Steve Boys, a conservationist who is leading expeditions across Africa, conducting research that will protect the communities and wildlife that depend on Africa's great rivers. Hi, Steve. Hey, Alex. Great to be on. To start out, you want to just introduce yourself and explain what you do? I'm Dr. Steve Boys, the lead um, Okavango Wilderness Project and now the Great Spine of Africa series of expeditions. So we're all about exploring remote river systems, typically undocumented on a large scale, and then working with local people, the guardians of those rivers, to establish community-driven based systems of protection. Where are you from and, and where do you live now? I am a South African, born and bred, seventh generation here, and work across Africa. I am now in Paul, so that is in the Winelands, north of Cape Town. This is where I keep my family, and this is where I come home to. What's it like growing up in South Africa? How did you personally get interested in river exploration and, and conservation? I've never thought about anything else or wanted to be anything else. <laughs> The National Geographic magazine was always big to me. There used to be these pull-out maps, and myself and my brother would just kind of imagine worlds far, far away. I was born in Cape Town. We moved up to Johannesburg in the northern part of South Africa to be closer to Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, to go on these epic expeditions up to Tanzania and look at the uh, wildlife migrations up there. But um, it's the reason I ate my peas and did my homework was the threat of not going uh, into the bush at some point. Uh, I mean, my... My childhood is all about that. And were, were your parents conservationists or naturalists or something? Why were you doing no. expeditions as a kid? No, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just a, a passion for both of them and a passion they instilled in their kids. Classic. Your parents just loved the outdoors and took you on all those wild trips just because they loved being outside? Yeah, and I think a lot of parents identify with that. A lot of us love the outdoors. And um, people often ask me, you know, what's going to happen in the next generation? I see so many parents that are doing, you know, accounting, law, whatever they do, but they go on amazing hikes and they spend a lot of time up in the mountains and in the wilderness with their kids. Yes, it's funny you say that because we're actually in France right now on a bouldering vacation, a famous bouldering area outside of Paris. But uh, we have our one-year-old daughter with us and she spends the whole day in the forest just roaming around eating dirt and, you know, getting into <laughs> things. I'm like, oh, exactly. it, is, it, is, it is pretty great. So, so talk about your background, how you transitioned from loving the outdoors to actually devoting your entire life and, and, and livelihood to it. Like, what was your educational path? How did you wind up actually doing that kind of work? I'd been everywhere in Southern Africa, East Africa with my family, uh, fallen in love with elephants and lions and leopards and cheetahs and everything else. I was doing a master's in environmental development, protected areas management. Is that a popular master's? Were there a ton of people in your graduate program? That's a pretty particular. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah. And it was the first time it had been done. We were the first group. And one of the students doing it with me had lived in the Okavango Delta. 
and took me up there for the Millennium New Year's. We drove through the place and I, I had a little look at the system. It was a quick look. Um, I went straight back. I told my professors, I'm not going to finish the master's here. I'm leaving. I moved up to the Okavango Delta and my life has had meaning ever since. I was 21 years old and I was just, there's nothing else. And that, that, that continued for a long time. I was offered to go to Berkeley to write up the PhD, like the big city, San Francisco, blew my mind. I ran straight back, but I was a different kind of scientist when I came back. I went back to be alone in the wilderness after being surrounded by millions of people in the Bay Area. Most amazing experience of my life, being completely alone. And they went on for almost two months. I learned that we are social creatures. As much as I wanted to be a hermit <laughs> in the wilderness and just be in the wild, we like people. We like talking about things. I wanted someone to congratulate me for putting the roof up by myself or setting up the nest boxes or, or whatever it was, just to talk about things. Yeah, I'm like, and that's why you do expeditions with lots of people now, because you learned enough from your field work that you're like, I don't need that anymore. <laughs> that's that's yeah. a long time by yourself. What is the Okavango Delta? The Okavango Delta is an alluvial fan. So it looks like a, it's like an oasis in the middle of the Kalahari Desert. It's about the size of Switzerland. It's got about 10,000 islands. It's a patchwork mosaic of channels, floodplains, lagoons. It's got the largest elephant population in the world, the largest hippo population. You have 2,000 lions living in this landscape. It is Africa's last remaining wetland wilderness, and it sits in the middle of a desert, entirely dependent on water flows coming down from the Angolan highlands that had not been explored, that had not been scientifically surveyed. You know, earlier you mentioned that the Okavango Delta is roughly the size of Switzerland. I was like, that's crazy, because if you look at most maps, like that's not the way it's drawn on a map. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I just think that when you're talking about exploring these wild places in Africa, it's hard for the average person in North America to appreciate the scale of, of this exploration. When we are talking about the expeditions in the Okavango, Zambezi, Congo, Nile, Chad, Niger river basins, the rivers and tributaries, the major rivers, when we complete those, we would have traveled further than the full circumference of the planet, going around the whole earth in a dugout canoe, basically. Africa is fast. It is the, the kind of heart and lungs of the planet. Steve's work is focused on exploring the continent with his Great Spine of Africa expeditions. Maybe just define the, the Great Spine of Africa project for me. The Great Spine of Africa is about the water security of over 450 million people living in those river basins and two-thirds of all Africans. You have the Okavango and the Zambezi River, these two great river systems. They touch onto each other. They kiss. That's the Okavango-Zambezi divide. To the north, you have the Congo-Zambezi divide, which we are exploring next month, the source of the Congo in the Angolan Highlands. Then you have the Congo-Nile, the Congo-Chad, uh, the, Congo the Chad-Niger. creates this arc across the whole of Africa, almost like a scoliotic spine. That is the great spine of Africa. We are counting every single bird we see going along, every single human being, piece of human activity. We are measuring water quality as we go down all the time. We use drones to have permanent sampling points. We do environmental DNA, eDNA, so that from water samples, we can determine what fish species are swimming in the water right there and then. We catch fish every single day in multiple different nets so that we can take DNA samples, clippings of their fins, so that we can expand our network. We look for invasive species. If you can measure it, we do measure it. Our science teams are the most important teams on expedition. And we're talking about the largest 
expeditionary mobilization, non-military, in Africa's history. This is 200 expeditions in the next eight years. We're doing 50 in the next three, 100 in the next five. I'm having a hard time even wrapping my head around the scale of all this because you're basically talking about extensive research on every major river in Africa. It's like, I mean, it's just so much. It's almost a better question, like what isn't involved in the Great Spine of Africa project? So for us, the scale is actually quite easy. It's activating local people into protecting what is theirs. In the past, it's been scientists coming in and leaving with the information and publishing at the UN level. We're at the local level. That is where we operate. We do bring in top scientists, but within three to five years in a country, in a landscape, we will have the teams activated, local teams to do this work. When you say we, who, who is we? It is about, and you know this, touring around the world, giving talks, inspiring people to engage on these issues, inspiring people to contribute and support, finding partners that match your values, like Rolex, and passionately scaling what you know you need to do. It's not a hard sell to establish a baseline for a river, to measure its heartbeat and share that information with the leaders of that country, with the local people living there, with people downstream, to make the people upstream at the sources feel important because they're often the least served communities in those countries and in those landscapes. Mm -hmm. And how has your work impacted people in those areas? I mean, taking local fishermen down the full length of, of their own river system, like in the Quito expedition in 2015, we took Waiyei river bushmen from the Okavango Delta that had never left the Delta to the source in Angola. And four months later, we get to the Delta and they met every single person along the river. They found connections in culture and history and language. And we're doing the same for the Zambezi, for the Congo, for the Kwandu, connecting people, rivers connect people. That's how you do it, is you use local people, meeting each other, finding unity and union. And... Um, driving change. Did that blow people's minds like for a, you know, Bushman and Akavanga going all the way to the, the source in Angola? I mean, the biggest journey of their lives. Is that like a, I mean, that's a big expedition by any standard when you guys are on the river for four months. Yeah, you get to know each other pretty well. You go through capsizes and tree blockages. We had to abandon the Kwandu expedition because of four hippo attacks, accidents in two days. These are incredible journeys. I mean, when I'm on a Makoro, on a dugout, I'm dealing with crocodiles that can take the whole boat in their mouth and swim across the river with it in their mouth, puncturing the bottom and you start sinking. (laughs) You have hippos that if you don't see them and you're going into the deeper water where they're trying to escape from you, they will come up and smash their tusks through the hull of your boat. Every person has to exist in the present moment. And that that is a powerful, powerful experience. These people are doing superhuman things every single day for months on end. They've accessed their superpower their innate wildness. Is that the appeal of, of these expeditions, is being able to tap into that innate presence? It's what makes them safe. It is what traditional knowledge and skills teach you. We are guided by the local people, the Luchazi, the Chokwe, the Waiyei, the people of these river systems. What they can do, how they can navigate, how they keep themselves safe. To me, traditional knowledge, skills, are the most valuable, most endangered human resource on the planet right now. Through your expeditions with the Great Spine of Africa, do you guys see any connection to the climate changing more broadly? I mean, does climate change factor into the, the baseline work that you guys are trying to do? Yes. One of the biggest problems we face now is that we don't have early 20th century river baselines or baselines for anything, ecological baselines. 
what we're doing now is establishing early 21st century baselines along the great spine of Africa for these great rivers. I mean, a baseline, these river baselines, these scientific, you know, hydrological, ecological baselines that we do are just a photograph, just a picture if they're only done once. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting contrast in the work that you're doing where you're doing the first exploration of these areas and yet there already are people living there pumping water, using the water. They live there for untold generations. It's sort of interesting to discover people who have lived there their whole lives. It's interesting to explore a river that there are already plenty of people who who know it super well, but it's just not known to science. I mean, can you talk about the the contrast there of sort of exploring places that have already been lived in for, you know, since since the dawn of man, basically, but that knowledge just isn't known to to the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, you don't discover anything. It's what is undocumented and very poorly understood are the sources of these rivers. The Great Spine of Africa is focused on finding conservation opportunities. I mean, just driving into these landscapes is incredibly difficult. These landscapes are the most neglected. They are unphotographed, undocumented, and certainly not studied by science in the typical sense. But local people live there. They are the guardians of the river. We would not have found one source lake in that landscape without local people. There's no species that we have discovered or um, source lake we have documented that was possible without local traditional knowledge and skills. They have been in the business of clean air and clean water for millennia. We have done eight years of engagement with them. Now we are acting on building a conservation development node up there, helping them develop a sustainable conservation-focused economy, helping them be prosperous and have better lives. Steve's work is supported by a team of partners who help make his adventurous research possible. When you talk about protecting these places, you know, in, in 2019, Rolex launched the Perpetual Planet Initiative. And can you talk about what that initiative has meant for your work? My children, all children, connect us to the future. And I want a perpetual planet. The Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative supports visionaries that are part of that mission. We face a global crisis. And Rolex is one of the biggest sites for inspiration on the planet. And to have Rolex committed to this and engaged with us on our mission is more than powerful. We feel incredibly privileged to have the support of Rolex and look forward into the future with them. Can you explain uh, how Rolex has supported your work? We start thinking about the Great Spine of Africa and took it to a bunch of people. And then we took it to Rolex. And Rolex gave us the support we needed to launch the first expeditions, to, to start to, can we build new teams for the Zambezi? And we can. Can we build new teams for the, for the Congo? Can we politically start, start that interaction? Yeah, we can. Yeah, it was inspiring to go to Geneva, to see the headquarters, to talk about big plans, to talk about 50 expeditions in three years. And, and, and you didn't see people look shocked or, or worried at all. They were like, yeah, let's, we must do this. That's an inspiring interaction. Yeah, sometimes just that validation is so important to have. It's just nice to have somebody tell you that you're on the right track and that they support your work and they're inspired by what you're doing. Steve lives for the adventure of the unknown, but he knows that there are many ways that people can help protect and conserve our planet. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in doing this kind of work? Start by stepping out. I mean, go out into the wilderness. Go and interact with the wild animal, a moose, elephant, go, go on a safari. Go swim in the ocean is a good start. Go climb up a, 
a rock mountain like you do, because it is. It connects you suddenly. People must just find that connection, find a way of contributing and helping. But the best thing you can do right now, if you're a parent, is take your kids out, like you are, into the, into the wild. Let them connect, let them be there. Let them think differently about the world. And how do you hope that the next generation carries on the work that you guys are doing? Or really, you know, on, on the chance that you aren't able to finish, you know, the 200 expeditions, how do you hope that that, that work gets carried on? You always have to ask yourself, what is your localization plan when you enter any country and do meaningful work there? And you localize, you create local organizations that in time can rename themselves something else, continue this work in perpetuity, working with local secretariats, sitting at the table with universities and museums in their local capacity. That's when you can do the real work, the long-term investment. But again, you always have to ask yourself in this work is what is your localization plan? And so more broadly, what advice would you give to the average person about how they can help keep the planet perpetual? And we just need to start caring again. We need to localize ourselves. You can still travel. You can still be a global leader. You can still go to France to climb in Boulder. But you have to go back to one place that you truly care about. That if anyone was to harm, you would be activated into protecting it, into helping it. And we all need to find whether it's a river nearby your house, a mountain, a forest, a stream, a pond, anything. Find that one thing that you truly, truly can't do without and you can't imagine a future without. Connect with it. That's what we need to do on whatever scale. That's, that's a really interesting take because, you know, I've always considered myself a, an environmentalist, let's say. But as a professional climber, I've basically traveled, you know, for 15 years. I mean, I lived in a van for 10 years. And so that idea of being rooted in one place and really caring about a home is something that has has kind of eluded me, despite caring about the environment more broadly. You know, and I started a foundation as well, and I support, you know, solar projects around the world. And, I, you know, I, I would say that I really care, but but I do kind of lack that that grounding in one place. I'm like, that is that is a really interesting take, because I do feel like that's something I'm sort of lacking in, in my own life a little bit. I'm like, oh, is, is there that one patch of land somewhere that I care about enough? I don't know. I'm like, that's this is some, something for me to think about. Yeah. Doesn't have to be just one place, but yeah, yeah, think about that. That was the incredible conservationist Steve Boys. I'm Alex Arnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. To learn more about Steve's work and Rolex's Perpetual Planet Initiative, visit Rolex.org. Coming up this season, we'll dive into the work of more incredible people making a difference for our planet. From ice core scientists to award-winning conservation photographers, you don't want to miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.